James, I, we have a guest today. Hello, Christopher. Good morning, Christopher. How are you Good. This morning? <laughs> Good morning, James. We have Mr. Tim Johnson with us today. Hello, everyone. Tim is a local artist here, and he's pretty well known, I think, all over the United States, but really well known in Phoenix area. And um, I actually met Tim th- through his wife, Denise, who is also an artist. Yep. Yeah. Anyways, I, I want to, just before we start, I have a quick question. James, did you get your shot? Well, I haven't been, I haven't, uh, I haven't been able to get one yet, but I am trying and I will get one as soon as I can. Are we talking about the booze on the cabinet? No, we're talking about the vaccination <laughs> shot. Vaccination. 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 The COVID, the COVID virus shot. Oh boy, this is not going well. <laughs> All right. So J- James, did you get the shot? I have not gotten the shot, but I will be as soon as I can. Because yeah. I'm a sane human being. Tim, are you getting the shot? And I'm talking vaccine. I think I am. I've just wanted to decide which one. I don't know if the Johnson & Johnson would be a good choice. or. Well, I think with- you should go with Johnson. Well, yeah, but I don't know which one is the most effective. It's the least purportedly effective one. It's like 70%. Yeah, but they're, they're so high. All of yeah, them but are still so good. high. Effective is, that doesn't That's matter. why I never got flu shots, because they they were just rolling the dice and hopefully they got the right strain for that year. So I was like, why put myself through that? So, right. So I, I've never really did. I'm going to say I have never done a flu shot before ever that I can remember. I have, I've done it twice. Did you have any side effects? Uh, sore arm after one mildly sore. Isn't that a reason enough not to take it? No, because it wasn't (laughs) significant enough. And a big girl, my wife is, uh, immune suppressed. So, uh, it's important for her not. Yeah. Yeah. I may have gotten one when I was in the military. Because they pumped a lot of stuff into us then. So they never told us what it was. What years were you in the military? I was in from 87 to 91. Did they do the whole anthrax thing with you? Because I know that was a big thing back then. Uh, that that happened a little bit after my time. Oh, okay. Yeah, it was uh, mostly just your run-of-the-mill kind of stuff. Yellow fever and whatnot. There's nothing, nothing scary yet. Because... Uh, Desert Storm happened on my last year in. I was going to say, were you did you, did you get in? I missed going to the sandbox. Okay. I stayed in, in Florida. I worked end of runway with the Air Force, uh, launching guys out going towards the Middle East, but I never went. I was pretty lucky. All right. So, Christopher. Yes. Uh, did you say you're going to, what do you, what are you going to do about the shot? No, I'm not. I don't think so. I, I, I find it highly unlikely that I'm going to end up getting a shot. I think you're going to wind up getting the shot. Why? Because be, my wife's going to make me? No, I think it'll be easier to get the shot than to deal with me. <laughs> you might be right. Bugging, bugging you about it. Well, the whole thing with the restaurants. Uh, I, think, I think by now you know that I can get under people's skin. Really, James? <laughs> does it very quietly. It's, it's insidious. <laughs> yes, and subtly. Well, repeatedly, too. Yeah. <laughs> and sarcastically. That's the key. Yeah. And I'll never lie, so I will never say to you, like, yeah, I got it, and not do it, so. Oh, I'll be able to tell. Because <laughs> of the sore arm. Uh, exactly. I'll just punch you in the arm every week. <laughs> <laughs> but the, so I watched the news last night, and they're saying about restaurants that you can kind of make up your own rules. So some of the restaurants are just sticking to what they have been doing. But a couple of the restaurants are saying, we're doing the honor system. What do you think about that? Well, the, they've already been open to, uh, I think, 25% capacity. So when I've gone to pick up the food, I, I've seen people dining, which seems a little crazy to me. But uh, mm-hmm. the other, on the other hand, the, the restaurants were pretty empty. So uh, I think- Which restaurants have you- Because I got to tell you, I walked into a couple of restaurants thinking I might want- I would be interested in possibly eating at a restaurant, but every time I go in, they're packed. I'm like, no, no I'm not eating here. Mm, no, I haven't seen that. But I don't get out very much. Yeah. What places have those been? So there's this whole central, well, I don't know what that area is called there, right north of Camelback on Central. There's all oh. these restaurants. They're all owned by basically two companies. Yeah. Oh, and okay. those off the light rail? Yeah. So one okay. of them's called, um, is, is that where they have restaurants Italian like Joy Taco, okay. yeah. the Windsor, Federal Pizza. There's another pizza place down the way called Blaze Pizza. And then there's this great ice cream place across the street. Well, if you want to go out to, d- to dinner again, you should probably get the shot. Yeah. Yeah. Or I could just stay home and, you know, be a recluse. Cook my yeah. own delicious meals. All right. Let's get some coffee. I want to get started. I think that's a good idea. Yep. Life getting you down. 
your head always drooping towards the floor, and then seeing your horrible floor just makes you feel that much worse. What to do? Don't change you. That's too much work. Change your floor instead. Courageous Flooring is happy, sunny, exciting, rejuvenating flooring. They make flooring fun again. Woohoo! Courageous Flooring. For one you just can't bear to look at your old, horrible floor anymore. You'll be so happy you won't ever look at your floor again. Whoopee. That's GoRageousFlooring.com. Gorageous Flooring. G-O-R-A-G-E-O-U-S.com. Hi, this is Betsy. I want to tell you about the Children's Museum of Phoenix. If you're in Phoenix, planning to come to Phoenix, or just looking for something fun to do, check us out at the Children's Museum of Phoenix where you can come paint and climb and use your imagination. We're 100% fun and currently 100% outside. To find out more, visit us at childrensmuseumofphoenix.org. Hope to see you there. Have fun. Be playful. It's interesting. I was, I, oh God, I can't remember. It was Denmark. And it was funny. I went to a Mexican place. I think it was in Denmark. And yeah. uh, they were asking us how to make it. It was not good. <laughs> no, in Denmark, they're, okay, so we're talking about restaurants that, now. That that sounds like the, the Mexican place Denise and I went to in, uh, in West Virginia. Now, this was in 90. So just really quick, 92. we're talking about Mexican food in places other than Mexico. And I said, I think... Mexican food is best in Arizona, not the whole United States, but I think if you're going to have good Mexican food, the best place to find it is in Arizona. I think you'll have to give me some tips on restaurants because I, the best Mexican food I've had in the United States was in Colorado and I haven't been down to Mexico enough to really give it a full shake, you know, a fair shake. And then as I've said before, the best Mexican food I have, the two best Mexican meals I've had were both in Italy. And you said you had Mexican food in Germany, Tim? Germany, I've had some good Chinese there as well. That was so. I've had Mexican good. food in Germany also in uh, the city of Düsseldorf, and um, I went there because one of my friends, I don't know, thought that I was in the mood for Mexican food on my visit to Germany. I, I didn't get why. I know they knew I, I they knew I loved Mexican food, so I guess they were like, "We'll try our German Mexican food." I will tell you, um, the tequila was excellent. <laughs> well, they do like their alcohol there. Yeah. Now, I'm not an expert on Mexican food, so I, you know my opinion probably doesn't carry much weight, especially since I haven't had any you know quote real Mexican food in Mexico. I think you have to have the baseline. I think you have to go someplace in Mexico where they do have good you know good food and and start from that. Yeah, and then not the street food, which is tacos and burritos. That's are you talking Mexico street food? Yeah. I've eaten Mexican. When I was in my 20s and I was in Mexico, I would always eat the food on the streets. Yeah. No idea what was in it. Yeah, street food is, it can be very good depending upon where you are. It was well, so Hong gonna, Kong. So going to get a hot dog, there. but that's all it is. It's a hot dog. I, well, honestly, I think a couple of times the meat in there was goat because it did not taste like beef and it did not taste like chicken. So I put it and I was not going to do the whole mental. I'm not eating dog food. Meaning, you know what I mean? Dog meat food. I, I just assumed it must have been some kind of a goat. Yeah. More than likely. So here's something goat funny. I was in London one time and someone else says to me, well, you like Mexican food. Let's go to Mexican <laughs> food in London. And they ask you where your cowboy hat was. <laughs> well, funny enough, when I go to London, I bring my cowboy hat. <laughs> I like to throw him a curve when I see him. Well, I wear, wear the costume. I mean, uh, yeah, I wear the costume. I got my jeans on. I, I have a couple shirts I wear. James, did you know I, I do the rodeo? I don't think I've ever shared this with you. That's another story for another time. I think that's a good idea. I go into London and I'm sitting at a Mexican food restaurant with very proper Brits. Tim, how do you eat a taco? Sideways. Yeah. With your hand, right? Yeah. James, how do you eat a taco? Oh, no. With my hand. Most British people do not eat anything with the exception of bread in their hand nothing else it hamburgers i've seen hamburgers eaten with forks and knives that's a bit european and i do know one thing that they do uh eat with their fingers that might surprise you do tell asparagus yep that is that is correct to eat with your fingers <laughs> well they did not eat tacos at my table with their hands and fingers did you show them how well you know i one of these people 
I try to respect the people that are at my table. So for, well, so when I'm in a new setting with new people, it doesn't matter whether it's in the United States or wherever in the world, I will wait until I see everybody eat first. Mm-hmm. That's wise. And then I will eat and I will try to match how they eat. I think it's one of the reasons why I eat with my left hand. You, you keep just leaving me speechless today. I just eat. I, I love food too much to worry about how people are going to think about how I'm eating it. Yeah. The only time I would hesitate so you is do if, the, if I'm confused by what we're eating and I don't know how to eat it. Yes. Like some kind of shellfish. How do you open a thing? Yeah. But when you, you do the knife and fork thing too? Whatever side the fork is on my plate, that is the hand that... No, well, I mean, it, like um, a European, the knife and fork cuts the food, puts the knife down, picks up the no, fork. That's an, no, American. Yes. Well, actually, Americans do it. No, 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 fork. no. Ah. No, Americans generally hold the fork with their right hand and then cut with their left no. hand. No. Uh, but they do not put no. it down. Yeah, no, no. You know, but they, they put the knife down. Okay, so this is, I love experience. this discussion. Yeah. So I have been watching people cut their food my whole life. So for example is, um, you'll watch most children in the United States, and I've eaten with lots of children because I used to be a school teacher. And I ate in the cafeteria with the kids. They all put the fork, or I should say spork, in their right hand with the exception of the left-handed kids. They put it in their left hand. But I also go to banquets. So in the past, I've gone to military banquets and they learn etiquette, at least American etiquette. The etiquette for Americans is knife in the right hand, fork in the left hand, and you cut the meat and... That's incorrect though. Okay. With the Europeans... Left hand fork, right hand knife, cut food, put fork down, put knife down, switch to the right hand with the fork, eat your food. It slows down the process. Oh, they I think, think that might that, that might be English because yeah, was, that's very English. Because uh, yeah, Europeans, that is, I, I will say that is true about the English. My Europeans friend switched me from the American way of holding the fork in the right. Mm-hmm. It slows down your eating. You don't gobble it down as quickly. But the other <laughs> what fun is that? The other Europeans switched me to holding the fork with your left, cutting with your right, and then eating with your left. Mm-hmm. Not, not switching hands. So That's how I do it. But Yeah, yeah. yeah and that makes more sense. So I, I was thinking, like, that that does ring some bells as being mm-hmm. different. You know, England has to be a little different from but Europe. But that's how you can tell really a, a European. Yank. What'd you say? That's how you can tell you're a Yank? Yeah. In college, actually, in my fraternity, we learned eat with your left, drink with your right. Any food to the left is yours. Any glass or water to the right is yours. And you always start with the knife, fork, and spoon with the farthest from the plate. So you work your way in from the outside in. Mm -hmm. Okay, so now in Germany... It's a little more like Americans. So the fork in Germany, I've noticed, is mostly the fork is on the left and the knife is on the right. And once again, the kids eat with whatever hand they favor. So left-handed kids eat with the left hand and right hands eat with the right hands. But James, you need to tell about Italy. No, I just explained them. Europeans. Uh, oh, okay. When I, you I say European, you meant mostly you're, you're talking. I meant uh, excluding uh, England. Yeah. Huh. So and 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 you know I, I had a friend it, it was in Italy actually because the, uh, a woman I was working with Donatella um, was Versace? very what's that <laughs> uh, was very cultured and very intelligent and very pretty I mean uh, very cultured and very intelligent <laughs> and she had an effect on me and so I basically did what she told me to do women do have that and, influence and so, on us no, don't but they also mm-hmm. you know I tried it out you know switching using the left hand and cutting with the right hand and that seemed to make more sense it took a little bit of practice but uh you know i didn't make too much of a fool of myself and in italy you really have to get your eating formula down because they serve a lot of food and you better eat a lot of it and well i've only eaten very offended in sicily i don't i think it was a seven course meal and there were not light courses (laughs) now in scandinavia i don't think they crossed the hands that i remember they just kept one hand for the fork and one hand for the knife. And I think it's called continental, not that zigzag thing that some Americans do, but more. Or perhaps yeah. Americans are more like Scandinavians because that's where a lot of us came from. Well, yeah, I'm yeah. one. Anyway, well, as interesting as this food talk. No, wait, wait, I got one more not, thing. Okay, go ahead. What? No, no, no. Please, please. <laughs> uh, before, you, you have, before you put it to bed, if you want to. Okay, it off. so if we're going to talk about eating utensils 
let's top cho- let's talk chopsticks. When you go to a Chinese restaurant, James, do you use chopsticks? Often not. Often I just I just I don't even try anymore. I just give me a fork. Okay, Tim, do you use chopsticks? Yes, because I consider it a physical challenge that I want to meet. So, okay, have either one of see, you? The thing ever is, eaten? I just I just want the meat. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, we're talking about the food here, James. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> Are we? <laughs> Okay. I'm sorry, Tim. Is this is this a little bit too risky for you? Risky? (laughs) No. (laughs) He wants to go there. I'll go there. (laughs) So, have you ever eaten with fancy chopsticks? Other words, in other words, they're painted slightly. Oh, those uh are difficult. Yeah, they're a little more slippery. You better. They are. You need skills. (laughs) You need. They're so slippery. So, uh, my I have a sister-in-law, and she's Japanese, and and so we have. Nice chopsticks that get when we eat Chinese food at the home or at a restaurant, we eat with chopsticks. See, it, I, th- I think the chopsticks thing is, is just a way for the Japanese to bully us because they've practiced it and they're so good at us. Oh, look how good we are. Oh, you can't do that. Yeah, I'm, hairy American. I'm kidding. What's well, we you? started training our kids young. We, they, you know, they have the ch- Japanese, the Japanese have these trainer chopsticks where they have like a little end, like a spring thing, mm. or it's like a U shape so they don't go flying. It's like yeah. Well, it's like tweezers. <laughs> it's like, exactly, it's exactly like tweezers. And then they can graduate. Who wants to eat their food with tweezers? <laughs> <laughs> well, Here's the thing. Some and, people and this, should. Okay, so this is where I was going with the Japanese utensil. The Japanese prepare their food in a way that you can eat it with chopsticks. So, for example, the rice is supposed to be sticky. The meat's supposed to be bite-sized. small little yeah. bite-sized cubes. Mm-hmm. So, when I get back to the European food and American food, let's take example like the hamburger. When I saw Brits eating a burger with a fork and knife, which I did with them because that's who I was with. I was thinking this food is physically made with a hard bun, with a curved top, with the meat in the center. So you can manhandle it with your hand. I think uh, you actually, I think what you, the point you made about uh, the Japanese and the, I think most of Asia preparing the food to be eaten in a certain way is a really interesting point. And one that I, when I finally realized it is like, Oh, this is so much better. Why are we, you know, delivering slabs of meat to people at their table. All the cutting, in my opinion, should be happening in the kitchen. You know, Mm -hmm. for one thing, having everybody with knives is just too dangerous. (laughs) (laughs) Is is that how it is at your house? (laughs) Knives should only be in the kitchen. Believe it or not, that, that, that goes back to medieval times. And only noblemen... Eight with an orf, I can right, right. Well, for one, they can afford if it. If you were a commoner, you had your knife. You just pulled out your. <laughs> you're talking about uh, in Europe. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's just, that's that was sort of a upper crust thing to do. Well, even the knife and fork. When I'm camping, and I'm trying to reduce the amount of cleaning I have to do, if there's no one around and I'm by myself, I don't use a fork. Everything's with a knife. I don't remember what movie it was, but there was some medieval movie where they were trying to introduce the forks to the medieval England. I think it was England. Yeah. And they started attacking each other with them. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I think I saw. <laughs> what is that from? Is very handy. Come on. What is that from? I've seen that too. That must have been a television show. Well, I think it was a movie, but you know. Viking? We don't know. Yeah. Uh, anyway. That's preparing food. Go to preparing food. I want to hear more. Oh, there, there wasn't much aside from, yeah, the, the, there should just be, the knives should be in the kitchen there. You don't, there's no reason to have knives on the table because the food should be prepared so that you can just eat it. Yeah. Yes. Deli- and that's what I, I appreciate about about the Asian uh, preparation, and and that's how I serve my food when I'm at home. When I, you know, well, it goes out. It's very efficient that way. I mean, you can well, finish your meal a lot quicker. Now, granted, it changes how you cook the, the the meat, but it's it's the way I prefer to eat. I like I like meat. I don't mind a raw steak. I'm not really much of a steak eater, but I, I don't mind having a raw steak. But I really like having small chunks of food uh, that are cooked nicely all the way mm-hmm. around. You rather well, have morsels than a big. Yes. Thing you got to gnaw your way through. In my bachelor days, I thought about that. Well, I worked in a restaurant. I I cooked in a restaurant. So I think about this stuff all the time. Mm. So I know that women do not like a lot of women. Okay. I'm going to get in a lot of trouble for this. A lot of women that I happened to date did not like eating in front of another person. That, That was they, would, they didn't want to get food on their face or they would eat light. So when I prepared the food for women, 
I tend to make sure the pieces are small enough that for one, they don't have to use their knife. And second of all, it fits in their mouth in a way that they can be modest. Yeah, so they don't have to talk to you like this. Have yeah, you ever I, I, that, that? yeah, where they take their hand and they cover their mouth and they're talking muffled and you're trying to have a nice conversation and, and they're completely worried about talking with their mouth open. Well, I, I understand why you don't want them to have knives. <laughs> when I'm around or when you're around? When you're around. <laughs> um, no, you know, the I guess I'm a woman now because I've come to the conclusion that I don't want to have conversation over food. I just, I, in fact, I just, I met a friend of mine who basically, uh, an online friend who I've known for years, never met him in person. He was mm -hmm. out, he finally came out to Arizona. We met face to face and he, he said, oh, you want to go out for breakfast? I said, no, let's just get coffee. Because I didn't want to be sitting there trying to eat and talk to him at the well, same time. Well, that's kind of like how this podcast got started. I mean, sitting Wednesdays in the morning having coffee with friends and we just said, let's record our conversations. Mm -hmm. So if I have a PSA for this week, it would be if you're dating someone, you know, I, I'm, I'm too old now to bother with that nonsense. Don't, don't, don't make a first date going out for dinner and dancing or something like coffee or something where you yeah. can actually talk to the person rather than trying to, you know, muscle through a meal as well as talking. Yeah. Plus it's thrifty. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it really, uh, Attract you were attracted to this idea of having coffee rather than dinner because it's much less expensive. Yeah, uh, at the most, that's not the only. No, okay. I want to be pie. clear. When I was a bachelor, I knew how to cook, so it was all about preparing food. Well, in fact, of, that's how I met my wife. Her what? first meal was lobster, shrimp. Oh my gosh, I'm forgetting where the third fish well, was. Well, that's a good idea. Of course, that never occurred to me because I was never a very good cook, but that's a good way to, you know, flex your little, your, your culinary muscle there. Mm -hmm. It was. <laughs> and still is. Yeah. <laughs> now, most ladies find that very attractive. So just to let you know, Tim, uh, James had a question for you. <clears throat> for yeah. one, you're an artist. And mm -hmm. I had said something a couple weeks ago. James, what was it? I'm sorry, Christopher. Are, are you jumping ahead in the list of questions? I am, but I was trying to so do a segue. I'm sorry. I was trying to do I'm a segue. Sorry. Yeah, into yeah, yeah. No, that's a very good. It's a good segue. I'm just. Thank being, you. I'm just being a jerk. As <laughs> so, Tim, as as a painter, as an yes. artist, do you cook? I do. And do you? Are you a good cook? I'm getting better. Oh, <laughs> that's not what I wanted to hear. I, I'm not the level of Chris, though. Uh, I though I do enjoy being in the kitchen because we we asked because yes. there was a, a proposition laid out to us that uh, artists are always good cooks and good cooks, I guess, no, can painters be and specifically paint, painters. Oh, yeah. uh, I would agree. I would agree because the the sensibilities are very similar. I, I couldn't disagree more. <laughs> Only because I, I well, so far through our I, I, our anecdotal I, questioning it. it I've been completely wrong, Tim. And I would say that I, I consider myself a painter, maybe not a great one, but I have no uh, ability to cook whatsoever. I have no feeling for it or any kind of but sensibility to, towards it. In your painting, do you use, is it more linear or is it color the most important part of your yeah, Color and structure are well balanced in mine. There you go. That's the difference. If you work with color, I think that that kind of dovetails with cooking more. Because presentation is half of it. Or not or at just least that. a third of it. Taste, smell, taste, and visual. Taste. That's the important thing. Colors going well together. Yes. When I when I do a good color combo in a piece, it, it's so good it makes my mouth literally water. I really think really Tim's being modest. I think Tim's a better cook than he's laying well, on to because I I believe I'm a better eater. he's told me you were a good cook. <laughs> I like food. I try to be a good eater too. But uh <laughs> But, but Denise kicks my ass on that. So, uh, Well, just because you live with somebody who's a better cook than you are doesn't mean you're not a good cook. I, I have potential. I'll say that. <laughs> That's an interesting point, though, that you have a visceral response to the yes. colors because it reminds it's, it's me been from day one of some of the, the cognitive science that, that's uh, research has on, on, come to light in the past few years where they recognize that the emotional senses that we have are all basically tied to our physical senses. So literally when you think of someone as being quote cold, you know, distant cold, cold person, we mm -hmm. call them cold. The part of your brain that physically responds to cold is activated. Yeah, I 
Is that because that. of the, do you think that's because of the verbal cue or do you think that's actually an image? I think it's because our, you know, we have brains. I guess, which way does it go? Does evolve. it come from? I think I, it goes back even before you could put a word to it. You're saying it's primitive. Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. So it, the primitive brain, you know, we don't have a specific parts of our brain to deal with these notions, these abstract notions. So mm-hmm. we're kind of hijacking what we already have. I think, I think that's the, the supposition, but we don't have enough data on it yet to actually know. But that, you know, the best part in science is when you have a little bit of data and you can wildly speculate about things. Mm-hmm. I think this coffee might be a little bit strong because I feel a little jacked up. <laughs> Maybe it's I can hazelnut. see his dilated pupils from here. Yes. Maybe it's hazelnut. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I did something terrible to poor James today and that was accidentally, I think it tastes normal. To, it doesn't taste hazelnut to me. But <laughs> really? That's all I tasted when I took the first So step. I have three flavors always in my kitchen, I have kind of a dark roast, usually organic, but not always organic. And then these two inexpensive frou-frou, uh, <laughs> one's called very vanilla. <laughs> so they can put the VV in there. And then the other one is just called hazelnut. I, I love to have not a lot, but just like a hint. So what I, in the morning, I do half mm-hmm. ground and half flavor every morning. And I choose between half hazelnut okay. and half vanilla. And I th- I thought I just gave you the straight stuff. It's it's not that strong, but there's a there's a taste of it. There's there's good coffee in there too. It's not just the, okay. The All right. <laughs> what what the hell is hazelnut? It's a nut. It's a hickory okay. nut. It's, it's, it's a I don't know. I, it's like I don't really know what nutmeg is either. Even though I lived in Connecticut for so yeah, long. Yeah. Well, in in Europe they called them they were hazelnut, but over here they're they're filberts or hickory how, nuts. How many languages do you speak? I can understand about three. Because I'm I don't know the way you speak. It just makes gives me a sense that you do speak more than just. English. What, what what are your other languages? I know a little German, Spanish. He's uh, pretty good at English too. Yeah. <laughs> we well, I think all three Some of Japanese us too. struggle with English. Hey, but going back to color and coffee. Yeah. When I make my coffee in the morning, I know it's the way I like it because I put milk in my coffee. I look at the color, I go, "Yep, that's the color I want." And yeah. I know it's ready to roll. Well, you in cooking, same thing. You yeah. can tell when the meat is at its best by the color. Well, I also, I know most people don't do this, but I actually can smell the food when it's ready. So like mm-hmm. when, like, I know this is crazy cause it's late in the year and I still have turkey sitting in the refrigerator. Ugh. So I cooked turkey last week when I mean last week, three days ago. And my wife goes, uh, I, th- I think it's almost done. And I, I could say, oh no, it, it's been done for about 15 minutes. She likes to go by a clock. She weighs the poundage and then she goes by clock. And I often don't even look at the time because I know what the turkey's going to smell like when it's when it's cooked properly and not overcooked. There, again, that's the same sensibilities you have with painting too. I mean, the painting is done when you know it's done and you can overdo it. If you keep beating on it with colors, it'll just the effect you have will just disappear. And it's the same with food. If you cook it too far, right. that beautiful flavor that would be at its optimum goes away and it becomes dry or whatever. Since we're talking about Tim's paintings, uh, can you describe your work a little bit? Well, mostly it's pastoral landscapes. Uh, I draw from the Impressionists and California Impressionism, which was prevalent in the early 20th century. It's... Same kind of color usage as the Europeans, but a little, little more chunky, a little more uh, structural. Well, I also think your paintings, this is my own opinion, I'm sorry, Tim, but I always think your paintings have a little bit more vibrance to them that you would typically see in a European. Well, the European impression is kind of varied a lot. So there were some pretty vibrant ones, but there are also some murkier, muddier ones. So yeah. It depends, but, but Monet it's, was very subtle. I mean, yeah. You, you really can appreciate his work in the flesh seeing it in a book it's it's oh yeah it's interesting you mentioned the american impressionists because even though they they came later than the the french impressionists Mm -hmm. uh i i thought their work was so far outclassed the europeans i don't know why just it seemed like it was just more uh, expressive to me well that yeah i think well i think the the uh subject matter was a lot more inspiring too that all that stuff was plein air they would go out in the field and paint what they saw and the California light is just oh, unique. There's yeah, nowhere true. else in the world where it looks like that, that I've been. You, you mean just like the way the sun shines, shine, the way the sun shines down on everything? Uh, the sun and the sea mist, especially San Diego, you can see it. It's just that there's, tell me if I'm wrong. So 
I, I'd never heard that before, but now you say it, I'm like, well, yeah, it's because, and tell me if I'm wrong, it's because in California, everything's kind of open, but yet the air feels like a hair of tropical, just just a hair. A bit, yeah, it's not like here, which is like being living in a hair dryer, but <laughs> it's, there's this the feeling in the atmosphere that gives you a buoyancy, and I, there's a reason people are the way they are over there. It's, it's it's not the, the marijuana, that too. But <laughs> well, have you ever heard the thing? That people, the people, the closer you get to the equator, the more friendly people tend to be. Um, yeah, I don't believe that's don't, true. Yeah, but I'm just saying. And that. the hotter the food gets. Mm. Well, that you know, there's a scientific explanation for that. Mm-hmm. Do tell, James. Uh, well, the further north you go, the easier it is to preserve food because it gets colder. But right. the way to preserve food, if you don't have cold available to you, is to put spice in it. Because yeah. that will well, the spice is high, the first, high the old meat, I think. First one that they use. What did you just say? I think a lot of times the spice is in to hide the fact that the meat is older. Uh, the, I, th- I thought you just said hide the meat. But, but <laughs> the flavor of the meat. Uh, for example, in India, down in the Punjab, it's very spicy. But when you get up in the mountains in the Himalayas, it's kind of bland, more like northern european cuisine you know i never knew knew that i never knew that yeah but mostly in the south it's all vegetables highly spiced in the north it's mostly meat dark gravies kind of things i don't know how uh, i don't know enough about any to know but i know in some places they don't they like their cows so much that they don't eat them yes i don't know how much that has an impact in the north they're more they're more muslim oh okay that would make sense in the south they're more hindu so uh so when did you start painting um, five years ago, I was painting from early, early. I mean, my fondest memories, my dad would bring home reams of paper from mm. the mill. He, he worked at a paper mill. Wow. And they made like business blocks of paper, you know, the stuff for, for typing on. And he'd bring a big block of that home and I'd draw on it. This, I'd use it up, this it was in the as fast closet. as he could bring it, it home, you like, use it. Uh, cannon fodder, you could just go through it. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I think just, that's a really important aspect of becoming a great artist or, or, or even a competent um, painter mm-hmm. is to be able to, to not worry about the the materials. Oh yeah. Well, I always consider the finished product is just a residue of my th- thought process. That's just bit next. <laughs> you don't fall in love with an image. No, that that's a very healthy idea. A lot of artists they get they fall in love with what they're doing and it becomes precious and overworked and just no. That's Well, and it stops you from doing the work that you Yeah, and you don't improve. Exactly. It, it puts up a barrier you can't push through. It's like, yeah. "Oh, you know, you if you take that one more step, yeah, maybe you'll get something new and better, but then maybe you'll wreck what you already have." Yeah. Yeah, it's just, it's just art. I had a professor in college says, "Don't worry, it's just art." Yeah. You're not going to hurt it. This is painting. <laughs> yeah. Be, be brave. And this, you're not going to progress unless you push that envelope. And then when you push the envelope, you might have mistakes, but a lot of times mistakes are opportunities. Mm-hmm. You might learn something from that mistake. Yeah. I mean, we, we say that, uh, necessity is the mother of invention. My, my take on that is actually mistakes are the mother of invention. Oh, yeah. You know, <laughs> plastic was invented by a mistake basically. And a lot of things that are happening that mm-hmm. way. We got a lot of improvements through necessity. Right. But actual breakthroughs, I think, come from mistakes. Yeah, oh, for sure. For sure. Penicillin. I mean, that was basically, I'm not really sure of the history of that, but it was from moldy <laughs> bread. I know we that. can make it up. Yeah. yeah so no one's going to check us. Well, anyways, the whole, I heard the story on penicillin from what I remember is that a doctor by the name of Fleming had gone on holiday and he had this like moldy juice next to his uh, bacteria that he was growing and he noticed the bacteria didn't grow and then it just kind of he documented it and then it just kind of took off from there. Anyway, sorry to get away so. from everything. I mean, they, were, they were actually eating it? Eating the moldy Well, bread, it was just or? in the house. And so he oh. went to personally investigate why certain groups and they all, he found a <laughs> pattern. It's just like one of these things. You know how I always said, I really don't like science but I do appreciate the observation of patterns yeah. and learning from those patterns. And that's what he saw. And then he basically figured out it was the mold. And then he looked more into it. And and now we have penicillin, yeah. which is, I mean, it's, let's just say, 
I know it doesn't cure everything on the planet, but it does cure almost everything on yeah, the planet. Well, when well, not drug. overused. Yeah, well, right, right, of course. Or it's probably too late not, for that Not overused, already. but abused. Which it's, is, you know, Americans are abusing it like wild. Well, they, they're always searching for the magic pill. Well, it's so funny yeah. you say that, but all three of us here avoid medication when we can, don't we? Oh, I yeah. Do, yeah. I, yeah. I've been brought up that way. I, yeah, I, same here. My mother would never even give us aspirin. It's like, tough it out. Oh, yeah. That, yeah. <laughs> I did want, I had a migraine several years ago when I was at my parents' place in Florida. And uh, so I asked for some aspirin. And I looked at the bottle before I took it, and it was 20 <laughs> years overdue, <laughs> past due. I was like, no, I'm not going to have any of this. And yeah. we went through their medicine cabinet and they didn't have any. That was like the newest stuff they had. We basically threw out their entire medicine cabinet. Well, I grew up in a household where we had one bottle of aspirin and there was nothing else in there. Like yeah. you always hear about these kids that get hooked up on pills. And I'm like, how are they getting hooked up on pills? I, do parents leave medication laying around? I, I guess they do because- yeah. We never had any medication. You, the, the day you were sick, mom went down to the grocery store, you know, say you had a flu, she'd buy the, what was it, NyQuil or whatever they were selling. Uh, soda crackers and 7-Up. Well, <laughs> I got. take that back. There was one medicine that was always at our house. Whiskey? Whiskey. Woo-hoo. Yeah. yeah. Honey, lemon, and whiskey. That's That was, what we, that was medicine. <laughs> it, it was for colds, sore throats. Unless you had a fever, it was whiskey, lemon, and honey. I mean, essentially, most cough medicine is that without the uh, codeine. And <laughs> well, and the, and to be honest with you, it worked. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, even to this day, if I get the little sore throat, I mean, littlest, I'll just go in and heat up some, or I actually, my mom also used to mix it with tea. Yeah, so we get the tea, you know, mix those ingredients with the tea. Dirt I water? A, dirt water, that's right. Uh, Ted Lasso. <laughs> and... Uh, yeah. Pops up. Pops up um, podcast. But anyways, yeah, and that was a cure for everything. Okay, old guys. Yeah. Well, we're just sounding old now. So <laughs> I, I, we are. I are we are we sounding practical? I have another question for you, Tim. Yes. Do you feel like you had any family, familiar influence on your work? Actually, no. Yeah. I'm, I'm one, I'm the only member of the family that went into the arts at all. I pretty much feel the same way. Um, I was coming oddball. Now, this next question you can take it how you want. I'm going to ask you, who's your favorite artist? But you don't have to, I, that's always, always seems like kind of a silly question. Who's your favorite movie? What's your favorite this or that? So not necessarily your favorite. Maybe what was, which one influenced him? Yeah. Influenced him the most. You don't have to necessarily say your favorite artist, but maybe an influential artist or artist you respect or. I'm guessing that the first one that really, that I know of as by name was Thomas Hart Benton. I don't know him offhand. Uh, you would know his work if you saw it. Oh, okay. He was a WPA artist back in the Depression. Mm. Him and Grant Wood were contemporaries. He was uh, the master who trained uh, Jackson Pollock. Really? For a while. I mean, he basically kept him alive when he was drunk off his ass half the time. <laughs> he would go and pick him up in some little podunk town somewhere where he was penniless and couldn't get out of town. Tim, you're a good artist. Why aren't you a drunk? <laughs> I like coffee. Oh, right. That's your, okay. That's I don't right. think you have to be drunk to be an artist. I think no. that's, you know, just a Well, a there's, there's artists and then there's artists. artists. I mean, his mental problems made him a great artist. Jackson you think? Pollock. I don't know. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I technically think he I, was very good. I mean, if you saw some of his earlier work. I think a lot of it is just coincidental. You know, it's, you happen to be a great artist and you happen to have some issues with substance abuse and you know, your story is a little more provocative. So that's what people remember. Oh, that's fair. I get that. Well, with this, that generation of artists, you know, that were living in Greenwich Village in the fifties. I mean, that Bohemian lifestyle was, yeah, that's what you did. You drank and smoked pot. And I think uh, Pollock is an interesting topic to look at though because obviously a lot of people are going to look at it and see just see the splashes yeah and i can totally understand that but i i personally think of him as being a very important artist for myself mm-hmm. I, I i can get lost in his paintings 
Uh, so do you feel that way? Do you do you think of him as being a... I would love... I've never seen one of his in the flesh. I would love to see one. I'm sure they're much more impressive once you see... You can actually see his hand. Well, it's almost like two different experiences because in when you look at them in a book, it's they they seem more intricate because they're small, but then mm-hmm. you stand in front of these massive paintings and it's mm-hmm. you're enveloped by it. Yeah. Once in a while, it's the opposite. So... On, on Van Gogh's Starry Night, I have always seen huge, monstrous murals of it. Huh. Like there's a huge one in Venice. Yeah. I've seen a huge one in New York, which is where the original it's a is. Tiny piece. Yeah, I went to go see it at the Met one time and I walked past it three times <laughs> looking for it. And finally, and it wasn't even at well, my eye level, it was kind of low. <laughs> uh-huh. And I go, holy crap, this thing is little. I mean, it's not super small but yeah he never it's not the large. size of a wall he never worked large because he was always plein air he, he had to be able to carry it under his arm and he couldn't afford big canvases right. anyway well i've seen some big I, I i happen to be in amsterdam and they have like a van gogh museum which I, i've actually because i like him so much i went to see it twice mm-hmm. two different occasions he has some pretty big pieces much bigger than i i thought because like i said when you say big how big oh that's fair um a taller than 20 inches. Oh, okay. so 20 by 30. Yeah, that's that's still that's, a plenary size. Yeah, when I was talking about a large Pollock, I'm talking about things that are like 10 foot square. Yeah, yeah, yeah. okay, fair enough, fair enough. No, I didn't say anything like that. Yeah. But or, I mean, it's like I couldn't, Rothko, I, which are biggest yeah, houses. I couldn't, right. I couldn't, I couldn't fit a Pollock in my house. But yes, so the, but at least with the star, the starry night, I was always surprised how many murals yeah. are in the world where it covers the whole wall and how much, how much paint he actually used he just mm. it's impasto but but with very no physical underneath it just, you could again you can see his hand well you said work. something i've never really thought about and that was having access to materials where that's not really a thought in your creative process you, you think a lot of artists think about that kind of stuff I know, I know I'm not an artist like you guys are. I I fool around with paint once in a while, but yeah, I think about, okay, so this paint's going to cost $30 Mm -hmm. a tube and this one costs five. Oh God. Yeah. Yeah. You got to break through that. I don't don't think you can be a significant or successful artist or painter until you can break through using them, looking at the dollars on the materials. It's difficult. Well, I'm just not, Uh, for uh, me personally, uh, I'm not an artist. So I don't, I, a a real skilled artist could make a beautiful thing with, anything you could paint with sticks and mud and make make something nice i mean yeah you can certainly you, you could you can i think i think that's true i think you can um evolve your style to meet your your means mm-hmm. well interesting okay since we're talking about dollars tim you the medium you use most is acrylic am i wrong yes acrylic that's a little bit that's a little bit more fiscal than oils where they're bringing in bug blood to make the color red two reasons i do this oils is very time consuming because of the drying time yes and if you want to work in oils you're going to have to have about seven or eight things going at once or you won't get anything done You, you can spend months on a painting just waiting for the varnishes to dry acrylic is much more brev more brevity to that you can get the same effects pretty much some people think oils are better. Well, when I look at your paintings, I often, I, I mean, because I know what you work with and I know <coughs> your, your preferred medium, I, I look at them and I go, wow, that's a beautiful oil. They look like an oil painting to me. Yeah. I don't see the medium when I look at it. And I think that's, that's a compliment. Talking about the book. So in a book, even the most beautiful books I've, I, I own and have seen out there in bookstores, it just doesn't compare to seeing it in person, mostly because you're missing the texture. Because, you know, when you stand right in front of a painting, it, it might look a little bit more like a book, but so often at a museum or a gallery, someone's standing in front of the painting, so you have to look at it from the side. And it actually, I have, I have learned to not look at a painting straight on to actually look at it from different angles because you start really getting the depth of of what the artist was going for well presentation is so important and i remember Mm -hmm. that really hit home when i was in italy uh because we were going to smaller museums which were not crowded and so we could really see the pieces and the pieces were in this situation where they were meant to be 
I remember there was, I can't remember. Who Do you mean was. like when you go to a church and you see like a triptych with a Mary and everything's gold? You mean like that kind of a, in its natural setting? Is that well, what you not, mean? well, I was going to actually explain that there's, there's uh, one famous statue. I can't remember who it was now, but it was St. Saint somebody. And I'd always in the books, I've seen it as a straight on portrait and it was not meant to be seen that way. It was meant to be seen from the ground. And this museum I went to had it up on like a pedestal. David. Yeah. Oh, in Florence, you mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's uh, it's, it. He, it it does no justice to see it in a book. His proportions are so jacked up when you when you see a photo, but when you're there on the ground looking up. At oh him, my it god, works. it's amazing! It works. And then, of course, and if you've ever been, I'm, I'm guessing you have James. I, I don't know if you have Tim. The the Vatican with all the sculptures there, where people actually knew where they were going to be placed, mm-hmm. and so they would change the sculpture to match the dimensions of where it's going to be so that from a distance it the the actual distance didn't distort the sculpture so like you're saying James where it is and how in its natural it. setting mm-hmm. makes a huge difference you're and especially just not looking at a photo of an object it's, it's especially with, environment. with with um, sculpture it's important too because i think this was um, Botticelli's david which is a very different david mm-hmm. smaller uh, that, I love that. One. I never had seen beautiful. anything but the the straight on portrait, and it was in it was in a museum. I could walk all the way around it, and I got a completely d- different sense of it, uh, being able to see the whole thing. Well, mm-hmm. the thing is, so, since we're talking about sculpture now, the thing is with sculpture that I've noticed is that when you look at it, at if you look at it in a book or or even a copy of it, um, the reason these great pieces are considered great is because. I don't think you get the the emo, the emotion out of the sculpture unless you actually see it. It, it. For example, is like all the little curves, all the little. I mean, some of them you can look at like a dying figure, and you, you can actually start crying. Mm-hmm. Not that I would ever cry, <laughs> no. but I could see you could cry. The sculpture. <laughs> well, I you know uh, the the cars was that the name of the film from Pixar? Cars. Yes, cars yeah. almost made me cry. So I'm kind of a sap. <laughs> You're a car guy, though. Right? Not, not especially. I drive a Prius, so I don't know if I'm a car guy. Uh, here's another question for you. Mm-hmm. Why do you paint? Yeah, why do you paint? Tim? Why do you paint, Tim? I know I paint. I just paint to get re- I'm to relax. Nuts. I well, I went back to that visceral feeling I was talking about with colors. That's the main reason. Mm. And so is that? Uh, it's just, it's a very emotional experience. I, mean, I love how I learn new things every time I do it. Mm. And it's, it's a unique skill that no one else has. No one can paint like I paint. I mean, every artist is that way. I mean, you, you can mimic someone, but you're not going to capture what he's going through as he's making this piece. So it's process. The process, uh, the problem solving. Mm. Lots of that. Mm. It's funny that you know you you look at a painting and you don't immediately see it as problem solving, but if you paint it, you kind of know. Yeah, you're creating you're, something from nothing with this raw material. So there's it's very there's a lot of engineering. Involved. So do you see yourself as God? No, <laughs> <laughs> but you're creating a world. Well, my own little world. Yeah. yeah. Well, you're a little god then. Yeah. Small god. A goblet. Goblet. Oh, yes. I oh, like no. that because it sounds like goblet. That's the- <laughs> it goes back to the drinking again. Title of the show. Issue here. Goblet. Title of the show. <laughs> uh, what was the first work you show- sold? A picture of a tractor for a nickel that I sold to a classmate in the fifth grade. <laughs> That's great. I sold my first, and I, I, I wasn't going to say this, but uh, I sold it in high school. It was, uh, I basically copied a Lou Reed album cover. Mm-hmm. So, well, you know, wasn't that much of a thing, but I remember it because I sold it to Allison and she said, uh, will you take $25 for that? It's like, oh yeah, sure. Damn. Like, and she was like, oh, will you take 15? It's like, Allison, you can't go down. Yeah. <laughs> you made your offer. I accepted 25. You can't go down after yeah. that. Yeah. That's not how it works. That's not how it works. <laughs> Try again. Though some people still think that's well, this was this was in the nineties. So twenty five bucks. Well, actually, yeah, it was that's still pretty, pretty good. good. Yeah, that's pretty good today that. for me. Yeah, <laughs> I, would, I would definitely take that today. Yeah, because I painted a, a uh, bass drum front for a for a band that they had. They wanted me. They I got ten bucks for mm-hmm. it. <laughs> so that was in early 80s but yeah i think we're i painted flowers on old furniture and sold the furniture <laughs> <laughs> that, 
technically that's a painting. <laughs> I'm joking. I so, mean, I have done so that. We know we know Christopher's career path. <laughs> Tim, what was your? Do you have any anything interesting about your career path? Uh, serendipitous, I guess, would be the path I took. Why? Why do you say that, Tim? Well, I've always enjoyed being an artist, and I thought it would be nice to become professional at it. Mm-hmm. But I never really knew how to bust into that. Mm. And I had no influences around me. I was just a blue collar family. I think you'll be more famous after you've left this earth. You're well known in Phoenix. You're not. You're not threatening Tim, are you? <laughs> he's going to buy a bunch of my work and then kill me. I know that's what he's going to do. People know who you are, Tim. Do you think people say, "Wow, I wish I would have known him when he was alive"? That remains to be seen. I, I, when people ask me, "How long did it take you to do this painting?" I said, "About twenty years." Yeah, of course I get that because it's a, it's a cumulative thing, and I haven't reached that point where I think I'll be memorable in that way. Do well, people I think really ask you about the time thing though? Do they often say oh, like they're oh, trying well, to put a, time, is that yeah. the way of figuring that's out a price tag? Yeah. That's the first question anyone asks. How long did it take you to do that? That's so weird. I, I wouldn't even think to ask an artist how long it took him to do. You know, maybe I take that back. Maybe on a, a sculpture I would. I'm, I'm not really sure what their thinking is when they ask the question though. Uh, I think they're, they're trying to figure out how to place a value on it. Yeah. That's what I would think too. I know if when I'm asking, I'm thinking, um, I'd like to try that someday. I wonder how long it's going to take. 25 years seems a little long for one sculpture. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Because painting is really funny because (laughs) the material cost of it is not very much compared to what a lot of them sell, at least the successful ones. Of course. Yeah. And to be a successful artist, if you're only going to be making, you know, a couple dozen pieces a year, You've got to sell each one of those for mm-hmm. at least several thousand dollars a piece. Of course. That's the hard the hard numbers that it comes down to being an artist. But it's interesting that you say that you didn't know how to break into it because most people don't realize if you want to be a financially successful artist, it's really more about marketing than anything about than anything else. Mm-hmm. Getting known. Because there's a lot of talented technical painters out there, but a lot of them can't produce in the levels to make a go of it. I mean, I had... When I first started out, I was doing it by the pound. I would do two pieces a day. Mm-hmm. Wow. Two, two fully re- realized paintings a day. Are we talking about the uh, the vignette, the vignettes I've seen you do? No, the full-blown painting, 24 oh. by 36s. Wow. You and do it, that one day? Yeah. Holy moly. <laughs> you learn what to put down and what to leave out. Oh, right. This, that's the, it's just like sculpture. You, you put... You, carve away what's not supposed to be there and you got a sculpture. So this oh, kind of gets into some other questions that I had for you. I think I might be able to wrap them together. Uh, the art world mm-hmm. and being successful from a marketing standpoint versus an artistic standpoint. And mm. just to make things more complicated, how do you feel about dead sharks? Mm. <laughs> That's performance art. <laughs> That's being generous. Yeah. I mean, he, he's, he's, Doing a shout back to, to who the we Dada talking about? Movement, be, I think people, don't, people weren't here during right, the pre-talking we're conversation. About, uh, Damien Hurst uh, breakout piece from 1991, 92, uh, the, the dead shark in the gallery. I think Dadaism, which is um, early 20th century, was a movement to kind of look at how ridiculous art was. Yeah. Um, I don't think you can really shout back out to that. It's like if you if you're trying to echo that, well, they already made their statement. Yeah. But I, I think he's still kind of, it's sort of a satire of, of the whole movement, the whole industry. I don't think it's a satire so much as a con job. I think he's, he's as a what? Con, oh, con job. Yeah, I guess. I mean, I, I can't believe that the person that bought that thing for 80,000 pounds. Is I think that was the initial thing. I, and <laughs> well, we don't want to rehash the whole story, but it's yeah. gone through several uh, iterations. Yeah. I mean, was it, Displayed in museum afterwards? It or? was uh, displayed in the gallery for a long time. And uh-huh. then I think it was moved to a private collection. Of course, it wasn't the original because they didn't really know okay. what they were doing. So the original didn't really last. Do you think somebody really didn't want the art piece? They just wanted a dead shark at their house? Yeah. Well, that would be a lot of... <laughs> I call it Ludifisk. Like, how can I legally get this? I can't 
legally get a dead shark in my house. Why not? But I can buy a piece of art. Why couldn't you get a dead shark? I think it'd be a lot easier and cheaper to get a dead shark in your house than buying this thing. <laughs> you could have professionals do it. You could uh, have a live I shark. I at least got it stuffed. Why put it in formaldehyde? That's very stinky. Well, that's true. A couple of fish restaurants. Oh, it wouldn't been... be as visceral. <laughs> okay. Anyway, I don't know. How, this isn't really a, a serious question. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to throw in the motorcycle somehow. So uh-huh. I was going to ask you, how does your motorcycle influence your artwork? I think they're very similar. I don't know if it influences. I mean, the state of mind that a mm. riding puts me in is very similar. Interesting. I guess. Okay. There's Tim, a, are you focus. born to be wild? <laughs> <laughs> All day, every day, baby. <laughs> it just that, that very calm, focused feeling that I get. You know, you talk about being in the zone when you're painting, when it's really working good. And right. just like something has taken over your hand and it's just doing the right things and making a beautiful piece of piece So it's object. like balancing. You're balancing. The, you're, you've got that balance zone with the yeah. painting and the balance I mean, you're moving through space at a high rate of speed and you have to be paying attention. Right. But not too much attention. Yeah. Because then you get distracted and fall over. Right, right. But, but you are very alive at that point. That's I feel really, very alive when I'm working. That's a very nice connection. I hadn't. Yeah, well, my, thank, my, that was a good question because question, I never really considered it before until just now. Well, the question was a lot more shallow than the answer. Yeah. <laughs> so thank you. And then just possibly the most important question mm. of your entire life. Oh Jesus! Boxers or briefs? That Bre- should be a pretty simple one. I mean, well, do you have to look down? I like are you talking, yeah, are you talking tidy whities? Oh, okay. You answer the that color, question. You get into color again. You you answer that question however you uh, I, best I'm a see boxer fit. brief. Hybrid. Well, <laughs> I guess that'll pass. Oh, you wear it for the occasion. Sometimes I don't wear anything. Good for you. Good for you. Sometimes I wear a Commando. kilt. But no, I don't. Oh, kilt. Did you hear that? Yes, I did. I've been wanting to get one, but they look scratchy. Oh, my God. We have this coat. Just put up with the scratchiness already. <laughs> I want to get one, too. I oh will not God. wear a dress. I've never worn a dress. James says every guy's worn a dress. I have never worn a dress, and I've never worn a skirt, but I told you. You have to wear it with a Doc Martens, though, or you're a total pansy. <laughs> you can't I want to wear it with a bagpipe. if you haven't worn a dress. <laughs> What's yeah. that? You can't be a man unless you've worn a dress. Come on. So... <laughs> This is going to sound bizarre, but Tim, we should go kilt shopping together. <laughs> okay. No. No. At least you're saying I want to get the long, tall sock with the little <laughs> with the little fringe on the outside. That little pouch for what, yes, where you keep, that, keep that. something. I don't know what they keep in that, but uh, are you going to get the big always, flowy shirt with the open down to the navel? No, thing? but I want the little, you're right. I do want the little leather bag that hangs off the belt and- you're right. What sack? does go in there? I, I always assumed it was related to the bagpipes. Well, you put your nuts in it because it's a nut sack. No, I, I, I'm guessing it's some kind of ointment time. because your your schwanz is going to get rubbed raw. <laughs> I I'll, I'll tell you. I'm okay. sorry. What language was that? I think it's I think it's Yiddish. Okay. <laughs> oh, so I, four languages. <laughs> I thought the the okay. So you know well, maybe you'll bagpipes have reeds. So I just thought they stuffed stuffed reeds in there. What? You oh, know marijuana. I got it. Yeah, I got it. Uh, I think it, it's probably harkens back to some kind of a hunting pouch. Oh, right. That, that's all this. It's oh, very right. symbolic yeah, yeah. nowadays. But the, the original tartan that they wore was basically just a, a wrap. All right. So you're saying you won't go shopping with me. Yeah. It's, it's a little I, too. I think the podcast is enough, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> I think we're getting a little too familiar anyway. All right. My coffee's all gone, James. Do you want more? Not at the moment. All right. I can use a fill-up. Okay. And we'll get Tim a fill-up, and then we'll talk next week. Thank you. Thanks for coming over, Tim. Yeah, Tim, thanks so much for coming over. It was fun. Maybe we can do this again. It's the best podcast we've done today. (laughs) All right. Glad to help. See you all later. Heat Stroke is brought to you by Markers in Motion. Audio engineer, Christopher Furman. If you'd like to contact Heat Stroke, Go to heatstrokepodcast.com. Come on now, the sun is out, the sun is out so bright. Don't you come on out, it's making light, light and bright for you. Don't you see me? Peek-a-boo. Don't you feel me? It's morning dew. All I want.
Yes. There's a cup. Yes. A very large cup. Yes. In my hand. Yes. A large cup. Hot. Warm. Oh. Cup. It's not tea. And it must be dark, dark brown. Oh, it's made from pink. brown. Make it hot. Make it hot. Make it very, very hot. Coffee. Hi, this is Betsy. I want to tell you about the Children's Museum of Phoenix. If you're in Phoenix, planning to come to Phoenix, or just looking for something fun to do, check us out at the Children's Museum of Phoenix where you can come paint and climb and use your imagination. We're 100% fun and currently 100% outside. To find out more, visit us at childrensmuseumofphoenix.org. Hope to see you there. Have fun. Be playful.